As Aaron said, for the next four weeks, we'll be in John chapter 10. And um, it's a message series centered around the picture given to us of Jesus, the Good Shepherd. And this morning, I want to bring you a message entitled, The Parable of the Good Shepherd. It's in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. And it was read earlier this morning by Richard. And we'll be using this as our guide. This will be our outline, so to speak. The Scripture will teach us who our shepherd is. Of all the names of Jesus, perhaps the most used and beloved is the Good Shepherd. I mean, God has called a lot of things in the Bible, but none stands out quite like the Good Shepherd. As John closed the previous chapter, in verses 35 through the end of verse 41, we find the description of the people as blind. He says, if you were physically blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see spiritually, we see, we understand, but they had rejected Jesus. He says, your guilt remains. John closed the previous chapter in chapter 9 as we saw last week. We see that the that there is a clear inability of the Pharisees to understand, to perceive, to see Jesus for who He is. John picks up on that theme by recording for us the words in John chapter 10. John 10, 1-6 is a parable. Many people say that John's gospel is void of all parables. And that's almost true. John chapter 10 is the only parable in the gospel of John. There's not any others. Luke and Matthew and Mark often record the teachings of Jesus and they were often in parable form. But John steers clear of almost all parabolic language. He saves one parable. One, as you see in verse 6, figure of speech. And isn't it interesting that of all the parables of Jesus, all the teachings that John could have written in this form, He chose to only record this one. I don't think that was a mistake. I don't think that was an accident. I think he's accenting for us one of the primary ways that we can understand what Jesus is in our life, who he is, and what he wants to be in your life if you're a lost person. The good shepherd. This is not the, this word in verse six, as you see it, figure of speech, is not the same word used in the, in the synoptic gospels. Parabole, which is often, uh, is always translated parable. This is the word that's found in 1 Peter and speaks of a proverb, a long proverb. And so, although the words don't match exactly, the intent of the story is the same. Peter writes in 2 Peter 2.22 of a proverb. And that's the same word used here in verse 6 of John chapter 10. A figure of speech. Now, why would he use this figure of speech? What is the purpose of using a parable or a proverb or a figure of speech? Remember last week I told you one of the most powerful mediums for communicating the truth is what? A story. A story. And that's evidence to us throughout our lives, isn't it? Our teachers often teach in story. TV is all about story. Movies are all about a story. A narrative, a story, and that's what we find here is a type of story to emphasize the truth and to bring out the picture of Christ as our good shepherd. This type of story has an obvious physical meaning to the people of their day. The the nation of Israel was a nation, literally a nation of shepherds. It was a nation of shepherds. Shepherds were all around them. Flocks and Flocks of sheep were in every city. Everyone owned sheep. Almost everybody owned sheep. Sheep were what they sacrificed. It was the primary sacrifice. Now, there were other animals, but this was the primary sacrifice. So every Hebrew family either owned sheep, knew somebody who owned sheep, or at some point had sheep in their home. They understood this physical analogy Jesus is making. And I know in our modern world, we're disconnected from agricultural life. And many preachers and teachers in our day are trying to steer clear of this language and create new metaphors 
for the Bible because God doesn't know how to explain himself very well and he needs our help because we're ingenious people. And I say that's a grave mistake. There is no metaphor, no story, no figure of speech more precious, more revealing of the heart of our Savior than the Good Shepherd. You can't replace it with any modern parallel. You can't top it. You can't match it. Jesus was the greatest storyteller of all time. That might shock you and surprise you, but he was. If you read the Gospels, they when he teaches, I mean, they are, they are amazing. I'm reading right now the tale of two sons written by John MacArthur about the parable in Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son. That's just a fun read for me, and I'm reading it. And, and, and he makes this point. You know, playwriters, famous playwrights, have never improved on that one story of Jesus. It's, it is heralded by secular liter, liter, literary experts as the greatest short story ever written or told. Shakespeare, one of the greatest authorities on literature and plays and dramas, used it almost word for word in one of his famous plays. He couldn't improve on it. Jesus was a great storyteller. So far be it from me to try to change the word to help you understand it better when you have one of the greatest or the greatest storyteller ever telling you the story this morning. He's telling you the story through the medium of His written Word. It's so important that you have your Bible with you when I preach. If you don't, you're going to struggle. I'll just be honest with you. The Bible is central and key to all that we will say or do at this church. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 6 will be our guide. And we're going to go throughout the Bible in some places. So I'm going to ask you to flip and turn, okay? So you hook into the outline found in the, in the and it will be clear. But hook into the outline of these verses, and we're going to supplement that with a lot of different Scripture throughout this morning's message as we look at the parable of the Good Shepherd. Most of the time when I preach, my outlines are very applicable. You need to do this. We need to do that. This morning, they're going to be very commentary-like, and that's on purpose. Because this is, I'm wanting us to gain, for the next three weeks' messages, we need to gain a good understanding of what this parable is all about. Okay, and then the next three weeks will be very, very applicable. We'll take the parable and apply it into our lives, as Jesus does throughout the rest of the passage. But this morning, we're going to gain a grasp, a knowledge of what he's trying to teach with this word picture. Okay, we're going to delve into the word picture itself. It draws this metaphor, this story, this parable, this proverb, however you want to call it. This verse, these verses 1 through 5, are drawing on a deep and rich cultural history. The history of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. Now remember his audience. Can I remind you of that? Maybe you remember. This John chapter 10 opens up on the hills of John 9 for a reason. It happened near the same time. He healed the blind man in the temple in John 9. He walks out and he's teaching the same group of people. Who is it he's teaching? He's teaching the blind man who he just healed... He's teaching those who gathered around as his followers, his disciples. He's also got the Pharisees there as an audience. He's got three different audiences in this group. And he's teaching this one story, which is going to talk about all of them. It's going to talk about all of them. And he's drawing off of a language they all understand. Shepherding was a traditional occupation of the Jewish people. If you start in Genesis chapter 12 which begins the history of the people of Abraham. You can't miss it. It's almost on every page of Genesis. These people were shepherds. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all shepherds. All of them. They entered into the, prom- to the, 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 the nation of Egypt when Joseph was, was the second in command under Pharaoh. And how did they come in? There were 70 of them, right? And how did they come into Egypt? How does Genesis say they came in? They came in as what? Shepherds. Pharaoh said, Joseph, what do your people do? What can they offer us? And Joseph said, my people are the finest shepherds in all the world. And Pharaoh said, oh, that's great. Egyptians hate sheep. 
we hate shepherds. We'll give you the greatest pasture land in our, in our realm, in our kingdom, known as the Goshen Valley. We'll give you the whole thing if you'll take our sheep and you'll shepherd them for us with your sheep. God's people entered Egypt as shepherds. And how did they leave Egypt? As shepherds. The Bible records for us in Exodus when Pharaoh kicked them out, it was with their herds that he kicked them out. Droves of sheep left with that exodus to cross the Red Sea. They were shepherds. Jesus is drawing off this deep and rich history. Moses, not only Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were shepherds, Moses was a shepherd. He spent 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd, hired out to a Midian, Midianite. Right? And he shepherded that man's flocks. And then he returned to Egypt. And what did God tell them he would be? He told them, You're going to shepherd my flock. Moses, you've been shepherding these sheep. Now you're going to shepherd my people on my behalf. And he literally shepherded God's flock. We get the picture in the Exodus of a shepherd, Moses, in his 80s, walking out in front of a whole nation, and they're following him like a flock of sheep. He's walking out in front, and they're following him. What a beautiful picture. This is the history that Jesus is drawing on when he, write, when he speaks the words written for us in John 10, 1 through 5. It didn't stop with Moses, did it? The people were shepherds in the land of Canaan. And we find in Samuel the record that God called a little shepherd boy named David to be the king. The king of the nation of Israel was a simple shepherd. Think about that. Now, the pagan nations hated sheep and they hated sheep herders. They despised them. There is no nation on the face of the earth that would have a shepherd as a king. Okay? I can't make the equivalent for you in our, in our day. I won't do that. Some of you might do a job that I'd pick. Okay? I'm not going to do that. But you think of the nastiest, dirtiest, most despised job in our culture. That's what a shepherd was. Everybody hated the shepherds except God. God loved shepherds. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all shepherds, and David was a shepherd. And he never raised up above the life of a shepherd. He was a shepherd king. You say, well, how do you know that? Because when he stole Bathsheba, what did Nathan the prophet do? He went and said, Shepherd boy, you got a big flock. And this poor shepherd over here just had one little ewe lamb. He doesn't have any other sheep. And you took his sheep. His one sheep. He never raised up above a shepherd. As a matter of fact, God calls his kings shepherds. They were shepherd kings. What a beautiful picture and a history that Jesus is drawing off of. And it's no, is, it, is, it, is it any wonder that the Old Testament also paints the picture of God as the shepherd, the shepherd king of his people? What did he say to Israel? I will be your God and you will be my people and I will lead you. That, that, that idea of leading them was like a shepherd leading his flock. And you'll follow me. I'll be your God and you'll be my people, he says. What a beautiful analogy. Not only is God the Father pictured as a shepherd, but the Messiah in the Old, in the Old Testament is painted as a shepherd. When he came to them, he would be a shepherd, the Bible says. It says it very clearly in some passages, which I want you to look at with me. Turn, Hold your place in John 10. We're painting the background for this important passage we're going to look at today. And turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34 is painting the picture of the fact that there are good shepherds and bad shepherds. There's bad shepherds in Israel and there's good shepherds, right? And Ezekiel chapter 34, beginning in verse 20, listen to what the Bible says about the Messiah. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I... I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak 
with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. You see that? I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. I'll judge between the people of Israel, God says. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant, David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now, don't confuse him calling him David there. Don't confuse that with the David of the Old Testament. This is speaking of the Messiah. David's dead. He's gone. He's not leading Israel anymore. They're in exile. And Ezekiel's saying, God's coming, and when He comes, He's going to come as a shepherd to divide the good sheep and the accepted sheep from the goats and the unaccepted sheep. And He's going to be their one shepherd. He's going to lead the flock. The Messiah, in other words, the Son of David, is going to be a shepherd. A shepherd king. We see it not only in Ezekiel, but we see it in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 13 Beginning in verse 7, Zechariah records for us, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Awake, my sword, the wrath of God, against the man who stands next to me, my shepherd, the Messiah. God's wrath is turning against the Messiah in this passage. The Messiah is being painted as a shepherd. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus quoted this passage when His disciples all fled from Him. In Matthew 26, He said, The shepherd's going to be struck and all you sheep are going to scatter into the wind. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn My hand against the little ones, God says. So the Messiah is painted in the Old Testament as a shepherd. In Micah, if we look at Micah 5, and we look at verse 4, we find another statement of the the Messiah being a shepherd. And I go to these great links because this is how we build the case for understanding John chapter 10. If you don't have the Old Testament at your disposal, you can't understand the New Testament in so many places. Listen, some of you have cut over half the Bible out. I was talking to the new member class this this morning. I told them one of the shames of our of our of our state as as churches in America is that we don't teach and preach the Old Testament. It's the background. It's the history of God's redemption of His people, and it's a beautiful picture, and it gives us such depth to the analogies and the pictures of the New Testament. In Micah chapter five, verse four, it says. And he, talking about the Messiah, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. That's a prophetic statement from Micah about the Messiah being the shepherd of his people. He'll stand as a shepherd, and he'll give them peace. Which is one of the large roles of the shepherd, wasn't it? To protect the people. To protect the sheep. He protected them from from animals that preyed on them. He protected them from their own stupidity. From From their own stupidity. If you go and research sheep, sheep will literally stand with grass to eat right over here and water to drink right over here and starve and thirst to death because nobody takes them to it. They're not like cows in that way. You know, cows, you drive by them all the time on the road. Everybody around here sees cows at some point. How many cows have you seen? How many horses have you seen sticking their head through a barbed wire fence to get grass on the other side? They're cutting themselves to pieces, but they're eating, aren't they? They're not going to starve to death. If you put cows in a pasture and let them eat the grass until it's gone, they'll break the fence down to get something to eat. They're not going to starve to death. They're going to go find something to eat. Sheep will sit unencumbered the pasture before them, but if you don't take them to it, they'll just starve to death. Shepherd, the shepherd was to protect his sheep. 
He led them in the green pastures. He watered them in still water. He protected them in the valley of the shadow of death as the, those who would prey on them were all around. And He brought them peace. The shepherd can lead the sheep off of a cliff and the sheep will follow him off the cliff because they love and trust their shepherd. Sheep may be dumb in some ways, but in one way they stand as examples to us. They trust and have faith in their shepherd. Whatever he says, they will do. Even, even when it's difficult, they'll do it. If they see him do it, they'll do it. They'll mimic their shepherd and they'll follow him wherever he goes. And so we have the picture of the Messiah leading his people as a shepherd leads his flock. We have it in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament. If you look at Matthew chapter 2 in the New Testament, this, this background and this history comes through for us in the pen and writing of Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. <coughs> he says, in Bethlehem, in verse 5, of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew quotes, he quotes for us an Old Testament passage which sheds light on the fact that the Messiah will be a shepherd. That's from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So we see in the New Testament, the Messiah is painted as a shepherd. Matthew 26, 31, which I referenced earlier. Right before His crucifixion, Jesus tells the apostles, the shepherd's about to be struck, speaking to Himself, and the sheep are going to be scattered, speaking of them. And then He comforts them, but don't be afraid in that day. It's being a fulfillment of the Old Testament. God promised this would happen. Don't be scared. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you hold John and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 and you begin in verse 25, you find Peter calling the Messiah a shepherd. <clears throat> Let's begin in uh, verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, Peter says, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He's the shepherd of your soul. He's the overseer of your soul, Peter says, as the Messiah. And then in 1 Peter 5, verse 4, as he speaks to the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, listen to what he says. Likewise, you who are younger, excuse me, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Who's the chief shepherd? Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Peter calls him a shepherd. And... Finally, the letter to the Hebrews in verse 13 closes, in chapter 13 closes out with a picture of Jesus, the Messiah, as a shepherd. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And finally, Revelation 7, 17 says, The Lamb who is the shepherd will lead the people through eternity. Do you get the point? This is not a small passage we're looking at in verses 1 through 5. And it's not drawing on a shallow history. I've just scanned through the Scriptures with you to show you the depth that Jesus had to draw on when He talks about the shepherd and the sheep. It literally could go on for hours we could flip from chapter to chapter in the Old and New Testament and see this analogy being painted for us. The shepherd and his sheep. And so we come to John chapter 10. <clears throat> and you know, as we go to John chapter 10, we haven't even spoken of Psalm 100 verse 3, have we? Where he's called our shepherd and I've alluded to but not fully read to you Psalm chapter 23, the most famous Old Testament passage calling Christ our shepherd. You see the depth? You hear the significance of what we're going to study for the next four weeks? 
I dare say you can't understand who Jesus is unless you understand this chapter of John. You can't know Him in His fullness. You know why you doubt your salvation? You know why you stumble over whether He will save you in the end or whether you'll be lost? It's because you don't know Him as your shepherd. You want to know why you struggle to follow Him as your leader? It's because you don't know Him as your shepherd. You're wrapped up in Him as a CEO, and you're wrapped up in, in Him as, as, a, as, a, as some kind of great king and leader, and you're wrapped up in Him as all these other things. Santa Claus. So many of our churches are painting Him like Santa Claus. No wonder kids often think of Him that way. You know? That's the worldly kind of tradition we've grafted in to explain to people who Jesus is. He'll give you whatever you want. He'll make your life easy. He'll make your family happy. He'll give you success in your job. Oh, put a red suit on Him and a long white beard. He must be Santa Claus. But then pick up the pieces when they come to you as their child has died. As their father's passed away. As their job has been taken from them and now they're jobless and about to be homeless. And you can't take Santa Claus to them. And it doesn't really do a whole lot of good to talk to them at that moment about him being the king. Because if you tell them that, they just want to know, well, then why are all these things happening? But when you come to them and you say, the Jesus who has saved your soul is a shepherd. It speaks. Because shepherds love their sheep. And they walk with their sheep through the hard times. They don't walk away and let the sheep find their own way. They make a way for their sheep through the hard times. So when your child dies, you find out whether you really know him as shepherd or whether you've just heard it said that he's a shepherd. In the darkest days of this calendar year for me, as I mourn the death of my child, I want to tell you, Jesus Christ was a shepherd to my soul. And I opened up His Word and it was as if He was talking directly to me. And it's as if He was taking that balm of Gilead and applying it to my wounds and my sores. And He had picked me up, as Isaiah 40 verse 11 says, and He had loved me as a tender shepherd loves the lamb. He pulled me into his breast and he shepherded me. I didn't need to know about him being a CEO. I didn't need to know about him being a king. Although he is. I didn't need to know that at the time. And I didn't need to hear about how he gives you everything you want. He's the genie or the Santa Claus. That didn't do me any good. Because he's just taken one of the most precious things I could ever want. My daughter. He didn't give it. He gave it for a little while and took it back. And my heart was broke. And immediately, as I whispered into her ear, he was whispering in my ear the words of Psalm 23. Even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to fear evil, son, because I'm with you. And my rod and my staff, they bring you strength and comfort. And then I came to the end of that passage as I read it over her little ears. And it says, it says, he will prepare for me a great feast in the presence of my enemies. And I will live in his house forever. Gone are the worries and fears that my salvation is not eternal. Because he is the shepherd of my soul. Do you see the depth and the significance of the passage we're going to study for the next four weeks. If you don't have this, you're going to miss a large picture of who Jesus Christ is. Your life, your Christian life will suffer. Your family will suffer. Your faith will suffer. As we look at this John chapter 10, it's very plain that this is a very common historical picture, but it's not easy to understand. There's some things in here that are hard to understand. As parables often do, there's a plain truth and a hidden truth. Parables always have a plain truth and a hidden truth. 
On the surface, they look simple. But in their depth, they can confuse and confound the wise. And that's why Jesus told them. In Mark chapter 4, he says, I'm telling them in parables so that those who have the ability given by God to hear, see, and understand will, and those who don't have the ability to hear, see, or understand won't get it. That's why I'm telling you parables. Jesus wasn't trying to get everybody to believe. He was simply presenting the truth so that those who God would will to believe would believe. And they did believe. Let's look at this passage. Simple outline. Simple truth in some ways, but in some ways very complicated. The first point we see in verse 1 is the identification of false shepherds. This passage, Jesus identifies false shepherds for us. Truly, truly, amen, amen. Bring your attention to what I'm about to say, he, he's saying. He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, the, that man is a thief and a robber. He identifies false shepherds, doesn't he? False shepherds find an alternate passage into the sheepfold. They find a passage besides the gospel of Jesus Christ. False shepherds existed in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they have a common identifier. They climb over the walls of the sheepfold rather than enter through the door of the gospel. They try to tell you there's other ways to be saved besides Jesus Christ, besides the good news, which He proclaimed from the mouth of the Father to us. False shepherds don't focus on the truth of God's gospel. Jesus identifies them as this way. There's some common elements I want to grab right here to kind of tie together what I've been teaching you. The sheepfold here in the first five verses, to me, it's very plain that it's Israel. Now, uh, other people believe other things, okay? And I, I don't want to get into all the alternate things with you, but I do want to say, <coughs> based on the historical context, based on the audience which Jesus is preaching to, I believe that the sheepfold that He's talking about is Israel. He says, right here in verse 1, with the Pharisees standing in front of Him, in front of him with the Jews standing in front of Him, I, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man's a thief and a robber. He's speaking about Israel. He goes on to talk about the fact that those who hear his voice are led out of this sheepfold. And we're going to have another sheepfold introduced later in this parable. But early in the parable, the sheepfold is Israel. Down in the passage, it's going to become clear, wait a minute, he's not talking about Israel anymore. He's not talking about Israel. He's talking about the church now. And we're going to see that as we go through it. But in this part of the parable, it's very clearly that Jesus is talking about Israel. Secondly, the door is the gospel. I believe it's the gospel. And you could say it's Jesus. He's the door. He calls Himself that. I'm the door. If you're going to come in the sheepfold the right way, you've got to come through Me. But, but what is the right way? It's the gospel, right? And what is the gospel? The gospel is that you are a sinner. You have no hope. You are cut off from God. From your very birth, you are marked as an unpleasing enemy of God. In every way you rebel against Him. Physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, relationally, you hate Him. He's your enemy. Whenever you try to do good, it's counted as evil. And whenever you try to do evil, it's doubly evil. You are a sinner by birth. That's the first element of the gospel. The second element of the gospel is God looks on you as His enemy and forgives your sin by what? Paying the penalty for your sin Himself. You're a sinner. You deserve death. That's what the Bible says, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. But how do we get the gift of God in Jesus? God takes the penalty of your sin on Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, and He dies in your place. Taking the wrath and the punishment due to you for your sins as God's enemy, 
putting it on himself and offering to you and giving you the robe of righteousness which Christ alone has earned by keeping the law at every point and every way. He was completely obedient to his Father. The gospel is you're a sinner. Secondly, the gospel is that God saw your sin, forgave your sin in himself, paying the punishment and giving you his righteousness. And third, the gospel is that you've been given new life. You're resurrected. Ephesians chapter 2 says you were born dead in your trespasses and sins. You were an enemy of God. You were a son of disobedience like all the rest. But God, who is rich in mercy, forgave you in Christ Jesus, and He saved you by grace through faith. And that's not of yourself so that you can't take any credit for it. It's of God. So we boast in Him. You have a new life raised up from the dead by the power of Jesus Christ. Given His righteousness so you can do what? Verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2 is so instructive on this point. New life. Why have I been raised up? Why didn't I just go straight to heaven? Because there's been good works prepared beforehand for you so that you can walk in them. The new life is full of good works, which is an evidence that you are a child of God. Anybody who comes to you with any other way of salvation is a liar, a thief, a robber, a false shepherd. And they're trying to kill, steal, and destroy. They're no friend to you. Anybody who says, I know that you're an evil person and you've done wrong in your life, but God loves you. When you die, if you've done enough good in your life, He will accept you. They are a liar and they don't love you. Anybody who comes to you and says it's Jesus plus some good works is a liar and they don't love you. Anybody who comes to you and tells you there's other gods, other prophets that you can believe in that are equal to Jesus and they all lead to the same end is a liar and a robber and a thief. Jesus said they climb up over the walls instead of coming through the door, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus identifies False shepherds. He identifies those who are there to kill, steal, and destroy. And in this context, the thieves and the robbers in verse 1 are clearly the Pharisees. It's the Pharisees. Jesus didn't pull any punches. He's just said, you're blind, and, if you, and, and you say you can see, and therefore your guilt remains. And I'm telling you, not only that, but you've gone another way around me and tried to take the sheep and tried to steal the sheep, and you're a robber, and a God does not accept you. That's what he's telling the Pharisees. That's why they hate him at the end of John 10. They despise him. They understand who he's talking about. Well, what, what way were they trying to lead the people in? Through the law, doing good deeds, fulfilling the works that God had commanded in the Old Testament as if they would save them. They were religious people, a lot like some of your forefathers were religious people. The Pharisees were religious people, and they were leading the Israelites to be religious people so that God would accept them. And Jesus said, you're a liar, a robber, and a thief. And there's no way to come to God except but through me. I'm the door. I'm the way. The gospel is the only way. False shepherds want not only to still kill... They, they want to still kill and destroy. They not only come in over false ways, but then they try to wreck the flock. We don't have time to go through all these passages in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 23, verses 1 and 2, would be good reading for you about the false shepherds. Jeremiah 50, verse 6, would be great. Isaiah 56, 10 through 11. We just... For sake of time, respect for you, we're not going to go through all those. And suffice it to say, those passages are very, very strong in their wording about the false shepherd. Secondly, in this passage, we see the identification of the true shepherd. We've seen the false shepherd. They're the people who climb over another way. But who's the true shepherd? He's given to us in verses 2 through 4. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
When he, is brought, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Jesus entered the sheepfold through the door prepared for him by God. I told you the sheepfold is Israel. Jesus Christ entered Israel, and he perfectly and completely fulfilled the laws given to Israel in the Old Testament. He entered through the door into the sheepfold. That was prepared for him by God. He entered through the door in perfect righteousness. You say, well then how can I enter? Because I'm not perfect. You enter wearing his clothes. That's how you enter. Or you don't enter at all. The gatekeeper won't open the door to you. Jesus came into Israel perfect. Sinless. He kept the law and obeyed perfectly. And by that, the doorkeeper opened the door to him. He was allowed to come in. It's a beautiful picture of who the true shepherd is. He's righteous. He's perfect. He's obedient. He's come through the only way made available. Jesus' sheep hear his voice and come to him. That's an identification of the true shepherd. The, the sheep follow him. The sheep follow him. Look in verse 3. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. They hear him. They recognize him. In Romans 8, verses 29 through 30, it says, All who are predestined are called, that effectual calling, and all who are called will be justified and glorified. The true shepherd calls you and if you're his sheep, you will follow him. And you will be saved. Jesus' sheep follow him in the way of salvation. Earlier I read to you part of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20. I read verse 25. Let me read the context there in verse 21. Listen to this. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus' sheep follow him. The mark of the good shepherd is he comes by the way of the door. He he not only enters by the true door, but he speaks and his voice brings out an answer from true sheep and they follow him. Peter said, he's set an example for you that you will follow him. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the judge who judges justly. He he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that he we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The mark of the shepherd, the true shepherd, is he comes by the way prepared by God. He was perfect and righteous, and he came and prepared a way that we might follow Him. When we hear His voice, we respond and follow, and He leads us in the ways of righteousness. That's the mark of a true shepherd. His sheep follow Him. You can't be a shepherd unless you have sheep. If Jesus didn't have sheep, you wouldn't be a shepherd. And so we end today by identifying the true sheep, which the passage identifies for us. Look at verses 3 through 5. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Not only are there false shepherds and a true shepherd, but there are true sheep and false sheep. This may be uncomfortable, okay? But hang with me. There are elect sheep. Those who God has marked as His before the foundation of the world. And they existed in the nation of Israel. And when Jesus Christ came as the Messiah, they believed in Him. But many inside that sheepfold of Israel did not believe. They followed false shepherds, the Pharisees, the religious people of their day. They denied Christ. They denied their Messiah. They denied their true shepherd. 
I know that we're disconnected. I, I'm a farm kid. I grew up around animals and all kinds of stuff. But I know you may be disconnected from animals. Let me share with you this brief story. Maybe geek fun for you. It's fun for me. Last Monday, last Sunday afternoon, my wife, who's much more creative than I am, <clears throat> says, let's take the kids on a fun day to Stone Mountain, Georgia. I'm always adventurous and fun once the idea is presented. Sometimes though, I'm just lazy and want to lay around the house. And Amy, you know, she said, the kids would enjoy that. Let's go up to the Stone Mountain. So I said, okay. So we went. And a preacher, just so you'll know when you're with me, is always looking for analogies. Always. Be careful lest you be one. <laughs> and when I was there with my kids, my family, we're walking around. It's a, it's a wonderful day. Beautiful. We were just having a great time. We went to this place there uh, in the farmyard. And in the farmyard, if you've ever been there, you know they have a petting zoo. Now, it's not a real good petting zoo, okay? They have one animal. <laughs> one, one, one type of animal. And it's sheep. And I was getting ready to preach this message. And we opened that little gate. You know, you have to wash your hands. They give you all these warnings about hand and foot and hoof disease and whatever all else you can catch while you're in there, you know. And my kids are touching the animals and wiping their eyes. I'm like, they're going to die. We came to Pettensy, they're going to die. <clears throat> but we're in there with all these sheep. There's maybe 15, 20 sheep. And, and kids were in there, and you know how kids are. They're wanting to pull the sheep and push the sheep. They're doing all this stuff. And the sheep are just as calm and peaceful. Some kids were calling the sheep, hollering at the sheep. The sheep just no, no listen to these kids. And there was a man. Most people didn't notice him. But because I've been studying this passage, he stood out to me with his straw hat on and his overalls standing in the middle of the barnyard. And when the sheep would get nervous, they all looked to him. And he was happy and smiling. And when he'd see them looking at him, he'd say, Hey, Molly, it's all right. Hey, hey, he called them all their names. And they were at peace. He grabbed a few grains of corn. And all the kids are playing with these sheep over here. And when he grabbed the corn, sheep got up and started walking over there to him. He opened his hand and they ate from his hand. And he petted them. He calmed them. He called them by name. And they knew who he was. I'm telling you, real sheep, the sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ, are calm in his presence. And when he calls their name, they hear him. When he opens his hand, they eat. And when he says, you're safe, they know they're safe. All the world can be pushing and pulling on these, on these sheep. All the world can be tugging at their heartstrings and calling for their affection, but they have affection for only one person. And his name is the Good Shepherd. And any time their soul finds unrest, they open their eyes and look to that shepherd. And they're immediately calm and peaceful again. Everything's okay because our shepherd is here. Jesus and God are no fools. They chose this analogy because it is the perfect analogy for our relationship with Jesus Christ. See, I could have put on his clothes and I could have tried to mimic his voice and the sheep would have never listened because true sheep know who their shepherd is and they follow him. They hear his voice and they come and they follow him. The sheep of God's elect were hear the call of the shepherd and they respond. It says they hear his voice. He calls him by name and then he leads them out. I can't help but think about the fact that when Jesus called his disciples. Do you remember him calling his disciples? He called them by name. When he walked past Matthew, the tax collector, he looked at him and said, Levi, follow me. When he came to the seashore and he looked at Peter and John with their father, he looked them in the eyes and disregarded the others and said, come follow me and I'll make you fisher of men. And they got up and followed him. 
When he healed people, Jesus called them, didn't he? His voice brings comfort to the sheep, and they followed. Isn't it amazing? Go and look in the Gospels. When he heals, it's by his voice. How many times do we see him saying, be, be healed, rise up and walk. The withered hand, the man with the withered hand said, stick out your hand. And he pronounced him whole, and he was whole. The man with the leper, the lepers, he told them, you'll be cleansed, go wash, you'll be clean. His voice is powerful, and his sheep hear his voice. In John chapter 11, he walked in front of a dead man's tomb, and because that dead man was his sheep, he called Lazarus by name, and he came forth. Because, see, his voice is unstoppable. It is irresistible even to dead men. It speaks with power and authority. And so you may say, I am dead in my sins and trespasses. And I'm telling you, if you hear his voice this morning, you will come to him and he will save you forevermore. He'll lead you. He'll guide you. He is the shepherd. I think about his voice. At the sound of his voice, a whole group of soldiers was flattened. They came to arrest him with swords and clubs and lights. And they said, who is this Jesus? And he says, here I am. And they just, they fall down, prostrate themselves in fear. His voice is powerful. His voice is irresistible. His voice speaks to dead men and makes it live. And his voice speaks to evil and tells it to flee and it flees. And I want to tell you something. If you're here today and you're captured, if you're grabbed hold of by some sin as a believer, don't use the excuse of I can't help it. Your shepherd can lead you out of that sin. And he does want to lead you out of that sin. And his voice will speak that sin gone. You can't speak it gone, but he can. And if you doubt that, you can see the examples of the possessed children that Jesus healed. Flopping around on the ground. Foaming at the mouth. And when Jesus spoke, the demons responded. Jesus is the shepherd. His voice is powerful. And his sheep hear his voice. They know him and they follow. And so I'm standing here looking at a group of sheep. And in a group this size, I guarantee you, there are people who already know their sheep because they've heard the voice of Christ and they've come to him. And I want to encourage you to have faith in your shepherd. He will not leave you or forsake you. No matter how bad it gets, how stormy it looks, how much the world tugs and pulls at you, He will not fail. You have peace in Him. And I'm looking at people who are not sheep, true sheep. They're false sheep. And I say to you, beware. Woe to you is what Jeremiah says. You fault shepherds, fault sheep. God's hand of judgment is on you, and it will come quickly. And I'm speaking to people who don't know their sheep. You're not necessarily false sheep or true sheep yet. You just don't even know. And as I've preached, you've heard it, and it struck a chord in your heart, and you've said, I think I could follow this man. I know who Jesus is. I didn't understand it before, but now I see him. And I want to follow him. How do I follow him? As simply as I can put it, believe in him today and you will be a follower of Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Trust in him. Place your faith and life in his hands as your shepherd. Let's pray. Father, as we dismiss from this time of looking into your word.